BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to this Building a Library podcast from BBC Radio 3. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of Record Review. And this time we're exploring recordings of one of the great Russian violin concertos after Tchaikovsky's, Sergei Prokofiev's Violin Concerto No. 1. Written in Russia, premiered in Paris, where its romantic lyricism must have surprised French audiences expecting a spikier kind of Prokofiev after ballets like Shoot and his Scythian Suite. But the concerto's virtuosic charms have seduced generations of soloists, which means that Kate Mollison has a mouth-watering range of violinists to compare, from Soviet legends to the latest bright young things. But one of the first to champion the Prokofiev concerto was a violinist who'd been sitting in the audience at that Paris premiere in 1923. Ultimate lyricism from the violinist Joseph Segetti in 1934. Strings of the London Philharmonic Orchestra quivering like silver birch trees under the baton of Thomas Beecham, that yearning melody spinning out the heart and soul of Tsarist Russia. Except, wait a minute, this music was written in 1917, year of the Bolshevik Revolution, and its composer was supposed to be a provocateur, a troublemaker, an enfant terrible who stirred up shock and scandal with his caustic student works. What on earth was Sergei Prokofiev up to writing a violin concerto that so shamelessly wore its hearts on its sleeve? With the streets of St. Petersburg in turmoil, Prokofiev headed east. He wrote most of the concerto during the summer of 1917 on a boat on the Volga and the Kama rivers. He followed the waterways as far as he could, right up into the tributaries at the foot of the Ural Mountains. He described the scenery as wild, virginal and exceptionally beautiful. He found a new fascination for astronomy. Before and after, he wrote music of ferocious sarcasm, sometimes straight-out violence. There are glimpses of those qualities in his first violin concerto, but it's also a work of wide-eyed wonder and yearning and escape. Segetti said that the concerto fascinated him for the mix of fairy tale naivety and daring savagery. And for that mix to work requires soloist and orchestra who can encompass both aspects with complete sincerity. was supposed to be unveiled in the autumn of 1917, but politics thwarted that plan and the premiere didn't end up happening until 1923 in Paris. 
Serge Kusevitsky conducted and the leader of the orchestra took the solo part. The performance wasn't great, but the audience was studded with stars. Picasso, Pavlova, Arthur Rubinstein and Joseph Segetti, whose supreme warmth and tenderness would later make the concerto famous. Another of the piece's great champions was David Oistrach. David Oistrach in 1971 in a pungent live recording that seems to have slipped down a tone somewhere in the process of transferring the record to digital and committing that to disc. Oistrach chose the concerto for his final exam at the Music Conservatory in Odessa. It was 1926, just three years after the world premiere, and Prokofiev was there to hear it. In years to come, Oistrakh's grace and power and breadth of tone would inspire Prokofiev to write great works for the violin. Problem was, by the time this concerto finally hit the world in the 1920s, the world had moved on. Nobody wanted anything with the faintest whiff of old-world incense. The composer Georges Auric accused Prokofiev of Mendelssohnianism, which he meant as a bitter slight to the music's hearty romanticism. Alexander Glazunov walked out halfway through Segetti's Leningrad performance and after the UK premiere, one newspaper critic scoffed under the headline Farmyard Noises at the Queen's Hall. Meanwhile, Prokofiev described that opening theme as beautiful and tender. He'd actually had that theme on his mind for years, from the time of his first serious love affair with a woman called Nina, whom he'd met during the First World War when he and his mother decamped to a village in the Caucasus. Nina's family had money and didn't want her consorting with a bohemian badass like Prokofiev. They made her cut ties and he wrote the opening theme during those heartbroken months of 1914. I'll let you hear it one last time in a very different treatment to that of Segetti and Oistrach. Prokofiev orders his violinist to play Sognando as if in a dream, but it's the violas who set the scene.
Wilde Frang with Thomas Sondergaard conducting the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne. That violin sound fearlessly exposed. It's icy and hot. It's intimate and expansive. More than a touch of the Sibelius Violin Concerto about that windswept reverie. The player whom Prokofiev originally had in mind for the 1917 premiere that never happened was Paul Kachansky, who was famous for a particularly bright and translucent sound in his high register. Wildefrang channels those qualities. Amazingly, this account from 2009 was her debut recording, released when she was just 23, but already so compelling in her musical ideas. Well, for something about 4,000% more muscular, how about this from Maxim Vengerov? classic Wengerhoff heft in 1994. The London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road Studios, conducted by Rostropovich, no less. Well, that quixotic theme is marked in the score as narrante. Prokofiev wants it to be recounted like a story. Wengerhoff's storytelling reminds me of a children's fairy tale narrator hamming it up with exaggerated eyebrows. I reckon fairy tales are most gripping when they're told poker-faced. love the directness of that approach, the unflinching gaze. Frank Peter Zimmerman unleashing a white-hot heat, every one of those pizzicatos wearing exactly the right expression, with the Berlin Philharmonic purring away under the baton of Lauren Mazel in 1987. 
Well, nearly 30 years later, the Berlin Phil recorded the concerto with Sarah Chang and Simon Rattle. I'll let them pick up where they just left off. The wind sound is glorious, but to me, these pizzicatos say less by trying too hard to say everything. hard to drive home the message. I'd say that if it's serious elbow you want, try this for size. Recorded in 1982 at Avery Fisher Hall in New York, Isaac Stern taking a leaf out of Zagetti's book and letting the pizzicatos just fly. Isaac Stern with all the command in that passage towards the end of the first movement. The problem with this account is the New York Phil, which can sound frankly bored. We've reached the sublime return of the opening theme, now in the voice of a soaring flute solo. I need proper magic here. Prokofiev's son Sviatoslav once described his father's character as being like the music. He could be a little brusque, but he was always sincere, sometimes tender. And that tenderness is up to the orchestra as well as the soloist. This is the dreamiest point of the whole piece, a moment of weightless serenity. It has to be ethereal. It's really easy to mess it up. Loads of violinists get in the way, clunky or square or way too keen. The harmonics have to just float while the flute does the singing. In the nearly 50 recordings available of this concerto, I poured over this moment, and to me, this is the most glorious of them all.
Claudio Abbado taking his time with the miraculous end of the first movement, painting the backdrop with languorous, meticulous brushstrokes of golds and silvers. It's a sublime orchestral sound from the Chicago Symphony in 1984, but the violinist floating above it all is Shlomo Mintz, and elsewhere he doesn't come close to the drive and the detail and the agility of other soloists. So at the close of the first movement, we have transcended to the heavens with those curtains of sound shimmering away like the aurora borealis. However, things are about to come crashing back down to earth. Dmitry Sikovetsky sounding staunch with the London Symphony Orchestra under Colin Davis in 1988. So this is the second movement of the concerto. Prokofiev flouts tradition here. He doesn't make the middle movement slow and profound. He makes it a wicked scherzo. It's a ghoulish dance marked vivacissimo. It's supposed to be skittish and Wildefrang is on fire. That's Vilde Frang daring Thomas Sondergaard and the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne to keep up. There's a thrilling spark to her playing. She has a much lighter touch than many in this passage, in fact, in the whole concerto, but she can also dig in when she needs to. And I love the way her bow just ricochets off the string like it's too hot to handle. For the violinist Leila Josefovich, the art of Prokofiev's first violin concerto is its romanticism laced with eccentricity and sarcasm. She says she hears many passages as hallucinatory waves of texture. She says the rhythmic energy excites her to the point of laying into a drum kit. Thank you. 
22-year-old Leila Josefovich leading the dance with fearsome grit, but she needs more kickback from the Montreal Symphony Orchestra under Charles Dutois. There's something amiss with that legendary wind section, those famed strings. This was 1999 and the orchestra's heyday was fading. It's as though someone's toned down the contrast in that recording, which is a shame because Leila Josefovich deserves so much more. On the opposite end of the spectrum, here's another superstar Canadian violinist, James Ennis, a man whose playing is unfailingly crisp. James Ennis, quick and sharp as a scalpel in a performance that just borders on clinical. There's an incredibly fine line between objectivity that's too cold to feel personal and a stony-faced charisma that chills to the bone. For me, James Ennis is the former, while Frank Peter Zimmerman is most definitely the latter. Frank Peter Zimmerman hurtling unblinkingly to the end of the scherzo with the Berlin Philharmonic providing some brilliant fingernails on chalkboard effects with the harp and the strings. I mentioned earlier that Prokofiev's first violin concerto had a rough landing after its premiere in the 1920s. Well, someone who did like it from the off was Igor Stravinsky. He understood the anachronistic sound worlds at play. He understood the jutting up of lush, expansive melodies and jagged rhythmic stuff. Like his ballets Firebird or Petrushka, this concerto depends on the performer's ability to do it all and to tie it all together like a storyteller who doesn't have to shout to be heard. There's a famous recording that I haven't even brought into the running yet. Kyung Wa Chung with Andre Previn conducting the London Symphony Orchestra in 1977. Kyung Wa Chung studied with Joseph Segeti, so there's good lineage here.
Kyung Wa Chung in 1977, a classic recording on Decca, brilliantly forthright playing with a million dollar sound, accompaniment from Andre Previn, designed to frame rather than converse. My issue with that performance is the sense that it's showcasing Chung rather than Prokofiev. No doubt she has masses of musical conviction, but I can't help feeling that the drama is more about her than about the piece. The LSO and Andre Previn recorded the concerto a couple of decades later with Gil Shaham. The whole thing now more suave in a very late 90s kind of way. Shaham sounding slightly stately, slightly bland, with a smooth, glossy sound from Andre Previn and the London Symphony Orchestra that feels too sedate and makes me zone out after a while. Maxim Wengerov is utterly luxurious in this passage near the beginning of the third movement. James Ennis is precise and measured. Frank Peter Zimmerman tells the drama straight and stern. Altogether dreamier is Vilde Frang, and I love how the conductor Thomas Sondergaard brings the orchestra into the dance as a genuine partner. Vilde Frang in exploratory mood. It's quixotic, it's whimsical, and it makes all the difference that rather than just ploughing along with those chords, she and Thomas Sondergaard are totally locked in with their phrasing. In general, the playing from the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne is understated and sensitive. It doesn't have the brawn of, say, the London Symphony Orchestra under Rostropovich.
grinding to a halt under the weight of its own sheer gorgeousness. It is kind of irresistible in small doses. That's Maxim Vengerov with Rostropovich and the LSO. Prokofiev wrote his first violin concerto the same year he wrote his first symphony, 1917. And like every modernist, he had to figure out how to re-engage with the past after the atrocities that had just been witnessed across Europe. Neoclassicism was one way of reconnecting with a history that felt less bloated than romanticism. That's certainly true of the classical symphony, The concerto, though, lingers in that forbidden world of heartache and big emotion. And it's not ironic. Prokofiev was a chameleon all his life, a musical shapeshifter of multiple guises. A lot of players feel the need to delineate clearly between his many sides, even within a few bars. The sarcastic, the lyrical, the outright caustic. Prokofiev, the populist. Prokofiev, the patriot. Prokofiev, the machine-age brutalist. For me, the only way this concerto works with all its heartfelt anachronisms is for it to be treated with total sincerity. Frank Peter Zimmerman, intense but entirely unhysterical. You might have noticed the fairly prominent part for tuba in that last passage, adding an element of the absurd because otherwise Prokofiev's orchestration is translucent and spangling. So much rides on the orchestra's ability to flux and surge and swarm. This piece needs nimbleness and lushness and delicacy. This, from the Russian National Orchestra, is dumpy, even though the playing of the soloist Julia Fischer is really fine.
Julia Fisher trying to dance through mud with the Russian National Orchestra. Prokofiev's first violin concerto has got to be a duet, and that's one of the factors that ended up sorting the wheat from the chaff among the multitude of excellent recordings. With Leila Josefovich, with Julia Fisher, with James Ennis... I just didn't get enough impetus from the band. The LSO recordings under Previn don't have enough orchestral character either with Kyung Wa Chung or Gil Shaham. With Claudio Abado, it's the other way around. He gets huge gravitas from the Chicago Symphony, but he needs a sparring partner to match. In 1924, Prokofiev added clarinets and flute elaborations to the end of the last movement because otherwise, he told his friend Mayaskovsky, the passage sounded too much like the prelude to Wagner's opera Lohengrin. If he was feeling sheepish about the romanticism, well, he couldn't do much about it now. This passage is extravagantly, rapturously gorgeous and no amount of wind decoys can hide it. Maxim Wengerov, glittering, ecstatic, with beautiful, stately orchestral playing under Rostropovich. I can't deny it, I'm pretty seduced by that recording. Wengerov's playing is like the naughtiest cake in the bakery, with all the cream and the caramel and the chocolate and the extra sauce that gives an instant hit, but deep down you know it wasn't the most grown-up choice and the whole thing soon gets icky and a bit embarrassing. For me, the real choice is between Frank Peter Zimmerman with the Berlin Philharmonic and Lauren Mazel in 1987 and Wilde Frang's astonishing debut with Thomas Sondergaard and the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne in 2009. Both are brilliant and they're really different. Frank Peter Zimmerman, a stern, objective, completely unshowy artist who unfolds the music with cool, deep-thinking rationality. He's been accused of being too impersonal, too dispassionate, but I totally disagree. I find his lack of sensationalism compelling and truthful, and the backing of the Berlin Philharmonic with Lauren Mazel is understated and supremely classy. 
But then there's Vilda Frang, inquisitive, playful, daring, sensitive. She was 23 when she made this recording, not much younger than Prokofiev was when he wrote the concerto. She has huge musical curiosity, but she has big ideas too. Compared to many of the vintage recordings, I love the light touch that she brings to the music. And I love the way Thomas Sondergaard partners her in the dance. I love the fragility as well as the fire. This performance opens up a whole new set of questions in the music, as though the score isn't a finished product, but a living, breathing, febrile thing with scope to go in any direction. And that, for me, is tantalising enough to make Wilder Frang my top choice. curiosity and instincts of youth winning out over generations of experience and one of the partnerships between soloist, orchestra and conductor that really works on record. Which is why reviewer Kate Mollison's overall building a library recommendation for Prokofiev's Violin Concerto No. 1 is Wilde Frang with the West German Radio Symphony Orchestra of Cologne conducted by Thomas Sondergaard. Fragility and fire, thinks Kate, and you'll find Frang's debut recording of the Prokofiev on the Warner Classics label. Full details are on the Record Review website, along with some of Kate's other favourites, and you've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. In the next edition, opera expert Roger Parker compares recordings of Handel's Ariodante with a title role written for one of the great virtuoso castratos of his day, and it includes one of Handel's loveliest arias, Scherza in Fida. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM, online and on BBC Sounds. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can discover a whole lot more music, radio and, of course, podcasts on BBC Sounds. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio3.